Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. <clears throat> and uh, why don't you come uh, journey with us and turn to Second um, Corinthians. Well, let's do this. I'll change my mind. We're going to do Second Corinthians 4, but let's all remind ourselves how Paul came to the faith. Let's just read through it one time. It's real quick. It's in Acts chapter 9. So in Acts chapter 9, let's go there. And let's just remember, the man who is writing the book of 2 Corinthians, let's see how he came to the faith. And that's contained in Acts chapter 9. And it says this, verse 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats, and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So here it is, Saul, who turned into Paul, just changed names, right? Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I mean, come on now. (laughs) That's pretty severe, isn't it? (laughs) Went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way, what does that mean? Any Christians. If he found any Christians, whether men or women, do you think that's any accident that it was put in there like that? No. He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And this is the part I want you to underline in your Bible, or if you don't do that, underline it in your heart. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, a light from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this is interesting. (laughs) Those letters are read in my book, which means it was the Lord talking, not that yours has to have red letters. And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Isn't that funny? That's what we all think. What do we need to do? But anyway, the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice and seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And you'll notice now, from 10 through 19, it shows how he... uh, went to a disciple in Damascus and got baptized. He had met the Lord on the road to Damascus, and his life was never the same. He was baptized, and then in 20 through 22, it says how he started to and began to preach Christ. Now, the reason I... Well, there's a couple of reasons why I'm asking you to read this first. One, to get it off your two-year Bible plan. No, just a joke. Just a joke. But here, what I am saying is, I want you to know that this is the man who's writing this book that we're studying, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So when you go back there, I think some of the things that he alludes to in that chapter are going to make more sense to you. Okay, so turning to 2 Corinthians 4, 
We are in a section of this letter, this letter that Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And just for background, for those you haven't been following, Paul wrote two letters that we have still, 1 Corinthians, even I can figure this out, and 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote those letters to the Corinthian church. It's a church in Corinth, southern Greece. It's on a little land isthmus, four miles wide. It is a place where the ships and the the sailors would go around the cape and come to another body of water, but instead they made rollers so that ships could go across the land and not have to take such a great leap or a great journey. It's a place of real darkness and vileness and evil things, uh, idol worship and temple prostitution and all kinds of things in this port city. And Paul has written a corrective letter in 1 Corinthians. Now he's writing a letter that's more sort of a stream of consciousness. In between, it seems as though he may have written a couple other letters that are expressed in his writings. We don't have those. Also, he had been to Corinth and established the church over a year and a half period. But after he left, some problems came up. He wrote 1 Corinthians, uh, may have visited another time. But prior to 2 Corinthians, he had told the Corinthian church, I'll be back. Sort of like somebody else we know. But anyway, I'll be back. <clears throat> but the Lord changed his plans. And some of the people at Corinth started talking bad about Paul, saying, you're not a man of your word. I mean, come on, you're a man of the Bible. You're the man of Jesus. How, how could you switch what you told us? And he's addressed some of those in this book. But watch. Then he sort of, in chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, just sort of does a, an outburst of praise in the middle of this letter. And that's where we currently find ourselves. And last time, he talked about the glory of the new covenant, the covenant of grace versus the old covenant, the covenant that was written on, the old covenant that was written on stone tablets, the new covenant written on the heart. The old covenant required sacrifices constantly. The new covenant required one sacrifice once for all. That's in the past. Jesus did it. He Hate it all. And we've been talking about. And so when you start to look in 2 Corinthians 3, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, you start to see the characteristics of people who live by grace. And there it is. He's talking about how he ministers, but you all, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, are a minister, folks. You're all called to it. There it is. You're called to be equipped for your ministry, for the work. We're to edify you here, to help edify you, but you're called to the ministry. If, you're, if you work somewhere, your work is your ministry. If you show up at extracurricular events, then that's your ministry. If you have children at home and you're with them all day, guess what? That's part of your ministry. And we could go on and on. All Christians are called to the ministry. 
service and love. And we're to live not by the letter of the law, but by the Spirit. That's what Paul told us last week as we studied it. And we continue on in that. In fact, in verse 5, he said of chapter 3, we're not sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves. Watch this. But our sufficiency is from God, and that's the glory of the new covenant. You not only get the standard to live by in the new covenant, you get the resources of God in your heart and life to actually do and live according to the new covenant. Isn't that beautiful? And that's what Paul's been telling us. He talked to us last time about how there were some who had a veil over their face. And he alluded to the fact that when Moses got the Ten Commandments and he started to come down the mountain, he put a veil on his face. And most people, when they believe or read the Old Testament account of that story, say, well, he must have veiled his face because he was so glowing that people couldn't look at him because it would, you know, it was, he was so holy. I mean, it would impact a sinning person, right? Or, or, or you know, a human. But, but Paul tells us, and this is fascinating, the reason he put the veil on his face is because he didn't want people to see that the glow that he had from the Old Testament was fading away. And we talked about that. See, when we live in a performance-based relationship with the Lord, we often get embarrassed or hide because we can't measure up. When you live according to grace, you don't have to hide. Your life is transparent because you're not living according to measuring up. You already do measure up because he's given you his righteousness. And now you're pursuing holiness. Doesn't mean you're perfect. You often sin or I do sin. And what happens is, is we confess our sin and God who is faithful and just forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's totally freeing and totally liberating. Not that we take advantage of it. We don't do that either, Paul tells us. We don't trample on the grace of God. That would be sheer stupidity. We wouldn't do that because Paul tells us in Romans, we're, or actually here in 2 Corinthians 5, sorry, he tells us we're new creations. So we have a new nature, and our nature is to please the Lord by just living according to grace. His standard is love, and it's the highest standard. You don't want to disappoint the Lord, and neither do I. And yet, he's not disappointed with us because we're found in Christ, you see. Man, that's beautiful. That's the new covenant. And Paul goes on here in chapter 4 saying with this word, therefore, or beginning with this word, therefore. I went through all of that because that's what Paul is referring to, the new covenant versus the old covenant living, and how freeing and beautiful and liberating that is to live this way. And in fact, he says, for those who are in Christ now, your face is unveiled, you don't have to go in and talk to the Lord and worry about any fading glory. You're, you're, no, it's off. There's this thing where you can come right into the throne room of God to receive help, mercy, and grace. That's who you are. You don't have to have a representative like the Old Testament go into the temple one time a year because it's so, shh, 
restrictive. No, by the blood of Christ, we can come at all times. You see it? That's the new covenant. It's beautiful. It's why we get up here and celebrate. It's why we sing worship. I mean, it's why you pour out your heart. It's the covenant of grace. Amazing. So, therefore, that's why I went through all that. He's saying, what's come before, what I've written before, watch. Since we have this ministry, what ministry? The ministry of the new covenant. This ministry of the new covenant with one of its marks of mercy. You say, well, you were just talking about grace so much. I know, but watch. Grace and mercy go hand in glove. God pouring out on you what you don't deserve, giving you all the resources for you to come back to him. You just receive what he's given you as a gift. Grace. But the doctrine that goes, is associated so closely with that is mercy. First of all, mercy, as you think about it, mercy is sort of having pity on, but watch. But there's a lot of people who have pity on others, but don't show mercy. And you know why? Because mercy always leads to action. And God's action is he withholds from us mercy, what we do deserve. So that's it. It goes hand in glove. He gives us what we don't deserve and holds back from us what we do deserve, all because of the blood of Jesus. That's it. So he says, therefore, everything that you've been reading before, since we have this ministry, he's speaking of him and his ministry team, so to speak, but he's speaking of you also. That's your ministry. Live by grace and proclaim Jesus boldly to the world wherever you go. You are ministers. Since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, watch this, we don't lose heart. That's sort of a way of saying, you know, grow tired or give up or be weary or just be at the end of your rope, you know. And Paul's telling you things here or telling you this here is one of the ways One of the things that he goes back to so that he and his team, his ministry team, don't lose heart. They don't give up. When the tough get going, right? I mean, and, and, and by the way, let's just do this and get it out of the way. Let's see how tough it was for Paul. Why don't you go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and look in verse 22. Most of us know this, but there might be some that have no idea about what this man went through in his serving of the Lord. In chapter 22 or 23, what? Oh, yes, you're right. I was wrong. I know, right? I knew that was coming. Uh, Okay. Verse 23, chapter 11, watch the first thing he says. Are they ministers of Christ? In other words, ask yourself, are you a minister of Christ? Paul said, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. This man was striped. Do you know what that means? 
He was whipped, scourged, hit on the back. Who, you ever, did you have one of those toy whips when you were a kid? I did. Nobody, I mean, I'm showing my age, because now you'd get so sued, S-U-I-E-D, or excuse me, S-U-E-D. No way a toy manufacturer would have a whip. We had them, man, and we played with them. You ever got nailed with one of those? Oh, shoot. I mean, just on the hand or something. It stung. Well, this man was striped like his Lord. And he says above measure. He was in prison frequently in deaths often. I mean, he, he was at the place where he could see we're right on the verge here of it being over humanly. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Imagine getting beaten with like a nightstick or something like that. Oh my. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen. That might have hurt the most. In perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in wilderness, in the sea, and also among false brethren. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, hunger, thirst, fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily My deep concern for all the churches. Wow. That's what this man had been through for the glory of the Lord. When previously he'd been a religious, self, or not self, but well-educated, highly educated, wealthy, prominent insider of a religion. And he could go places and he had access and he ran in the big circles that people love to run in. And for all of it, when he saw the Lord on the road to Damascus, he said, enough of that. I'm going to live for the Lord. So when he writes, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart. We can see how humanly it started to get to the place where he would lose heart. And he says... What I and my team did is dwelt on, stayed in, thought about, preached to ourselves, took it to the Lord, met with the Lord in prayer, all about the covenant of grace. I thought about his grace and how mercy went hand in glove with grace. We thought about that. And as we were in the uh, water, as we were being beaten, grace and mercy was so real to us through Jesus Christ that there was no way we were ever going to give up. Wow. That's what he's writing. So he says, we don't lose heart. And now he goes on and to continue to tell us, continue to show us, continue to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to show us what the new covenant is like, what, the, what living by grace, what ministering by grace is all about. And the first thing he does is he announces or tells us a negative thing he doesn't do, they do not do, to make sure they don't lose heart. And the first thing is, he says, we have renounced the hidden things of shame. 
not walking in craftiness, nor handling the uh, word of God deceitfully. And that's a very fascinating word in the Greek. And you've got to realize now, Paul, who was, could both, who was Hebrew and yet lived in the Greek world, you know, and was Greek, you, you understand, he was a Roman citizen, so he was Hebrew, and yet he was Greek, <laughs> or a Gentile. He, the point I'm trying to make is, he thought in Hebrew, but he wrote in Greek. You get it? Because he was well positioned to do that. He was in both worlds. So he thought in Hebrew, he writes in Greek, but this word, deceitfully, it does mean deceitfully, but it also has a kernel of this one. And this is important for you to know. Dilute, D-I-L-U-T-E. So what he's saying here is, the first thing we did as we dwelt on, thought about, so that we would never lose heart and never lose focus and never lose sight of the thing that we're called to do, which is to proclaim Jesus, we'll see that in a minute, and show our fruit to the world and tell everybody about Jesus. And as we do that, there's certain people that hate us and try to stripe us or beat us with rods, but we're not giving up. And one of the reasons we don't, and one of the things that we do to keep us going is we forget all deceitfulness and craftiness about the Lord. We're just simple. In other words, we're not going to do any gimmicks down at the synagogue to get more people to come and hear about Jesus. Remember, when he would go to certain cities, he'd start at the synagogue because they were interested in spiritual things, and he was from that world, so he would give them Jesus. We don't do, we we don't say, hey, we're going to call in the fog machine, and we're not going to kind of hide the ball. If you come to Koinonia Wednesday night, we're going to have a raffle for the $500 Steeler tickets so we can get more people here, you see. That was never of Paul. That was never of his ministry team. There was nothing to hide the ball with people who are coming through the doors. You're going to see even in the Christian world, and I'm sure even I've said it before. Paul's very straightforward here. What is Paul intent on is that, look down in verse 5, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. So, When he says we're not going to do anything crafty or deceitful, I want you to know if you're here for the first time or you're listening online, there's one thing we want to do here. We want to show you, reveal to you through the scriptures, Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, and this is where I say I probably have said it before, why don't you come hear the gospel? It'll transform your life. Yeah, it will, but it's not an it. You understand? It's a person that we're trying to, or not trying, we're revealing to you through the scriptures. When we do our ministry, we don't want to be crafty at all. You know, if we get to 
70 kids in the children's ministry on Sundays, I'll come up here and you can throw water over my head. You laugh, but stuff like that happens. You can cut my tie in half. Well, yes, we want people to come to the children's ministry, but the children we want to give Jesus. We don't want to do anything crafty. We don't want to tell you anything different. It's not about the candy that they might receive or those snacks. Those are great, and we should have them. That's not what I'm saying. But that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is we don't want to be deceitful or crafty in anything. We renounce anything hidden. There's no hidden agenda here, hopefully. We want you, I want you, we want you together with us to know Jesus more and more. Don't be crafty. That's what he says first. It's interesting to me. And as you do so, don't dilute. Watch this. It's, 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 it's happening before our eyes. Don't dilute. Don't, don't put water into the wine and dilute it. Don't water down the message. I'm sorry if you don't want to know you're a sinner the Bible says you're a sinner, and so am I. We're all sinners. I'm sorry about that. I just can't stand the thought of anybody walking out of here ever and we not recognizing the fact that we're sinners. I mean, you understand, right, folks? There's marketing strategies in the church that say, let's not mention that so much so that more people will come. We'll eventually get to them and talk to them about the gospel, but let's just get them in the door first. Well, okay, maybe, but that's not what Paul says, is what I'm trying to say. See, in order for you to know the good news, you need to know, I need to know the bad news. And the bad news is, without Jesus Christ, we're all sinners that are perishing and are going to hell. But there's tremendous good news. <laughs> and so we're not to handle the word of God deceitfully, but by what? This is a very interesting phrase. When you're ministering to people, you don't have to hide the ball. Here's what he says. If you're ministering, don't be deceitful. Don't do any of that. Don't water it down. But by manifestation of the truth, in other words, bring forth the truth and all the truth. Bring it out to people. At the soccer game, at the hockey, I almost said field, but, I, but anyway, rink. I guess field hockey has a field, right? But anyway, wherever, if you're at work and you're on lunchtime and people say, I want to know what you think about the Bible or whatever, here's what Paul says. Give them the truth. Manifest the truth. Not diluting it, not being deceitful. Commanding ourselves, watch, to every man's conscience. This is fascinating. We are to appeal to people's mind. Yes. Come let us reason, the Lord says. But, watch this. The truth appeals to that place that God has put in all of us, worldwide, all of humans, that tells us what we ought to do or shouldn't do. That thing called the conscience. And Paul is saying, truth impacts that thing in people. 
that's sort of deeper than just reasoning. So if you're diluting things or hiding the ball or being crafty or deceitful, you ever ever just read through something in the Bible or been in a sermon where the pastor actually made sense and they were bringing forth the word and you don't know how to describe it. You're looking at the word. You ever said it and you just go, whoa, that's true. And either you have maybe or you haven't recognized that before or been living in that way, but you know the Lord is putting it right there and you know the Holy Spirit's confirming and you're like, whoa, that's true, that's right. Ever had that happen? I believe it's this verse. The truth comes out. It's manifested through the word and it's revealing Jesus himself and it hits you right there, not only in your mind, but in your conscience. And that's where people are impacted, right there. So if you're dancing around stuff, if we're dancing around stuff, well, woo. Now, I don't mean be battering people. Jesus wasn't always that way, right? He wouldn't snuff out a smoking I'm getting them backwards. A smoking wick. He wouldn't bruise that tender reed or break it in half. No, he was tender with people, but he was truthful with people. And I think that's what is happening here. So he's saying here, what do we do as ministers? Let's bring forth the truth of the word. Don't dilute it. Don't be hiding the ball with people. Is it wrong to say that you're going to have a transformed life? Not necessarily. I've said that. But that's not the real issue. I'm not leading you to some self-help program. I want to lead you, and you want to lead people to Jesus himself. So then he goes on and says, And it gives us real insight, doesn't it, (laughs) on how to pray. Verse 3, he says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, that's a reference, remember, to Moses in the Old Testament. And then there was this veil. And now he's saying, if the good news of Jesus The gospel is veiled. It's veiled to those who are perishing. For somebody who surrendered their life to Jesus Christ at the cross, his work at the cross and resurrection, and said, Lord, I want you to come into my life and just be the Lord of my life, and I just want to live for you. Lord, come in. Then, see, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ has hit them here, here, But for those that it hasn't happened to, they have a veiled mind, and the Bible says they are perishing. That's why we're so passionate about sharing the gospel. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, Hmm. who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, do you know now why I had you read Acts 9? Remember? The light from heaven shone on Paul, or shined on Paul. Which one is it? Whatever. And he says here that 
not only is the gospel veiled to those who are outside of Christ, but he says that that is a place where the enemy of our souls, the God of this age, wages spiritual war to keep the veil on. (laughs) Did you catch that? And you know this, we've talked about this several times. There's a real sense in which Satan rules this world, not in some ultimate sense because the earth is the Lord and all of its fullness, we know that, yet Jesus didn't contest any of Satan's claims to rule over this present age. And you could look at that in Luke 4, 5 through 8. But we know the rest of the story. Jesus is coming to receive the keys, right, for earth. And Jesus is going to rule and reign. So, But at the current time, the enemy of our souls is sort of the, not sort of, he's the God of this age. And he has blinded who don't believe, lest the gospel, the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on him. How do we pray then for the lost? How about this? Would this be a great prayer? Lord, shine your light into this person's heart. Lord, bind the work of Satan and his blinding work and give faith to overcome the unbelief that sort of invites the blinding. You say, well, wait a minute, I don't want to be blind or the Bible doesn't make sense to me. Well, here, do this. Recognize this, that a light of the gospel shines into people's lives and it's a light, watch this, promising you a transformed life. Nope. Promising you if you give your life to Jesus, you'll be rich. Nope. Promising you all sorts of things. Uh Uh-uh. It says this, the light of the gospel is this, that the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on you, your heart, your mind, your conscience, everything, the glory of Christ. So, see, here I am. Maybe you're like me. I'm like words. So when I hear that, I go, wait a second. What's the glory? I think Galatians 1 says, in some um, translations, it's the face of Jesus. Glory can be kabod in the Old Testament, the weightiness of God, the heaviness of God. You understand that? Glory means what really counts of God, his essence, his attributes, who he is. That's the glory of God. And you see it, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, in the face of Jesus. Are you getting it? So there's a guy named Alan Redpath. Alan Redpath loved rugby, football. Going to be a professional football player, rugby. Not our football. And the Lord shown the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ into his heart. And guess what he did? He 
gave up his career in football. Who would do that? Okay. And anyway, he became a great blessing over across the pond, and he ministered in many churches in England and America and Scotland. Alan Redpath. And here's what he says about this verse. And I want you to consider this because, see, I want to know what's the glory. How do I know what the glory is? And he writes this. Watch this. As you look into the face of Jesus, because Paul says in Galatians 1, it pleased God to reveal his son in me. Paul says that in the other book, Galatians. But he says, now, Alan Redpath says, now, if you look into the face of Jesus, you can see it from many different angles. Now watch this. I know, I'm not supposed to read as a public speaker, but you gotta hear this. For instance, I look into the face of Jesus when God became a baby, and I think of him in a manger, and I see him there as one who is turned aside completely, watch this, from all self-seeking and all things that fill our minds and dominate our lives. Everybody tracking? It could have happened in a palace, it could have taken place in a mansion, but surely there is a tremendous glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as in poverty he came to Bethlehem. Again, I think of him as a child of 12 as he sat and taught in the temple, and with a spirit-instructed mind, he baffled all the learned professors of his day. They were astonished at his understanding and answers. That's found in Luke 2, 47. Alan Ridpath says, I see the glory of God in the face of Jesus as he taught in the temple. Now, hold on. I got more. I see him in a carpenter's shop in Nazareth, standing among the shavings. Ooh. I see something of the glory of God in the face of Jesus in the divine leisureliness in the heart of our Lord as he, was a, as he was content to await God's time there in the carpenter shop, knowing that his hour hadn't come. In quietness and confidence, in all those surroundings, he worked in that carpenter shop. He became the carpenter. Nothing imperfect ever came from his shop. I think of him, too, in his ministry as he fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes and met every need. I hear the word of authority as it comes from his lips, and I see the devils begin to tremble and acknowledge his absolute sovereignty. I see the glory of God in the face of Jesus as he rebukes the powers of sin, as he ministers every tone of his voice and every look on his face and every word he speaks but whether it be a word of tenderness and gentleness or a stern rebuke, it reveals the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But I see him most wonderfully on the cross, for surely there is no place that the glory of God in the face of Jesus is revealed more clearly as at Calvary where he laid down his life for us. I see the glory of the love of God that stooped so far in order to save us and I see the glory of the justice of God in the face of Jesus, who allowed himself to be made sin for us, rather than that sin should go unpunished, or that the Lord should be dishonored. To those who have eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, 
or to those who have uh, eyes to see, the glory of God in the face of Jesus is revealed as nowhere else at the cross of Calvary. Sorry for long reading. But when you read that, it gives a new spin, a new thought about the glory of God. Sometimes I think we think, wow, when we're reading these things, the glory of God, it's too high and attainable for me to know and see. And that's the point. Jesus came down, and that's where you see it. Isn't that beautiful? And he says, if you know that, you live by that. the, The resurrected power of the Lord Jesus Christ, as bondservants, he says in verse 5, you won't lose heart. (laughs) Watch this. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What do you know from the first couple chapters of the Bible when God said, let there be... I think it's in 1-3. Let there be light. What Paul is saying here is, and he's marveling, he's saying, hey, folks, you know that amazing miracle that God did as creator when he said, let there be light, and there was light? He's saying, that's really great and wonderful and amazing, But a heart that has heard and seen and known the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and surrenders their life, that person surrenders their life to Jesus as the light is shown on them, similar to the light of Paul on the road to Damascus, and all of a sudden, boom, all of life's possibilities open up. He says, that's the real miracle. You getting it? He creates light. And he's saying the real miracle is that God came down so you could have a way back to him. My goodness. It's staggering, folks. He equates what we're doing in here as miracles, as trophies of grace to when God created light. Wow. Then he says this. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I think we should do this for a women's retreat. Oh, no, they did do this. This is their theme for their women's retreat. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. New Testament or New Covenant grace-based living recognizes that we're earthen vessels Clay pots, dirty, dusty, and oftentimes cracked. In fact, it probably brings up, doesn't it? The seventh chapter of Judges. Why don't you go there? The seventh chapter of Judges. There's this guy named Gideon sort of shows up in the book of Judges, okay? And he comes onto the scene and he destroys this altar of Baal in chapter 6 of Judges and he 
asks God for a sign of the fleece in the end of chapter 6. And then there's this amazing story in chapter 7. Acquaint yourself with chapter 7, and hopefully after today, you'll never read it the same. So this guy named Gideon, he is getting ready to fight um, enemies of the Lord. And they're kind of on different sides of hills of the valley. And the Lord comes to Gideon and says, you know, you're gearing up for the battle, but wouldn't this be weird if the Lord said this to you? But so right, the way the Lord works. You got too many people for the fight. <laughs> I don't know, you got about... 32, 22,000 people, whatever, thousands and thousands of people. Let's pare that down to about 300. <laughs> Say, what? Lord, wait a minute. We, what? 300? And he does it by some sort of strange thing there, uh, getting down and lapping up the water. And if you go to Israel, you're going to go to the place where they actually did this. And then, you know this, well, how are we going to, how are we going to beat him with 300, Lord? I mean, I'd prefer the several thousand, you'd say. Wouldn't you say that if you were the captain? Come on, I, right? And so they come out of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Oh, sorry, I got ahead. God told them, do this. I want you to get some pitchers, torches, and I want you to take torches and put them inside the pitchers or the clay pots and have a trumpet in every man's hand. And then what happened was Gideon and the men sort of hid around the camp or up on the hills, kind of in different places. And right at the right time when you know God orchestrated this, they blew these trumpets in their hands and they broke the pitchers and the torches started shining out from the pitchers, not pictures for you Pittsburghers, pitchers. Remember? And you know, the, the enemy got disoriented and started, you know, whacking each other and killing each other, and they won the battle. That's the story of Gideon, right? And I didn't do it justice, but that's the story of Judges 7. So when you go back to 2 Corinthians 4, I think Paul's thinking of this. There's this earthen vessels, and you know the story. When people trust in their own power and strength, 32,000, 22,000, whatever it was, horses, chariots, armaments, we're better than you. You do say something about us and we'll annihilate you. The Lord says, when you just trust that I'll do the battle, even if there's less people, when you start to see that you're hopeless and need the Lord, you're in the perfect position that Paul examines here and talks to us about to display the glory of God through your life is when you're helpless and hopeless. See, the problem though becomes as you live life, even as a Christian, well, I'm good at this. I mean, I can do this, Lord. I'll talk to you tonight when I go to bed, and we'll do some praying, but let me just get through the day first. 
I mean, sort of that's how we operate. Just let me do that. And the Lord is saying, when we recognize that we need him all day, every day, because without him, we could be 32,000 strong and we're going to end up defeated. But if you get in that place where you recognize that you're just a clay, dusty, dirty pot who's got holes in it from the scars and the battles, that's when the Lord can come out. It's where he exhibits his glory in. That's where people, watch this, see Jesus. So we have this treasure in earthen vessels, and so that's the reason the excellence of the power may be of God and not of man. New Testament, New Covenant, sorry, I keep saying New Testament, New Covenant, grace-based living is so happy that they, we would go to the background and Jesus would pour through. See, but the problem becomes, too, when we minister, I mean, it's sort of intoxicating, like as a minister, to bring yourself up a lot. You know, oh man, somebody, you hear of somebody's successes back there. Be honest, man. And you think to yourself, yeah, I prayed for that for like a month for you. So you articulate that to the person. No, not always. Maybe you're not like me. But you know what you're sort of saying? <laughs> man, I was really instrumental in your healing. And of course you did pray, and praise the Lord you did pray, and that's faithful praying. Thank you for that. But you, you know what I'm saying, right? Or when Ray Steadman, I, I always say this, in the first part of his ministry, his ministry just blew up. It went from eight families to thousands in months, and he never gave an altar call. It was all the people just uh, sharing the gospel of Jesus, and he, would, he has these amazing sermons, and so after church, he would go stand in the back and shake everybody's hands, and he got to the point where he said, I recognized I didn't really care about the people, although I did. I did care about the people. What I wanted was them to tell me how great the sermon was. Who? How honest is that? So he says, Paul says, may it just be the Lord and not us. That's new covenant grace-based living. You don't need the credit. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, not destroyed. What does he mean here? Well, hard things come against us. In this world, there will be tribulations, Jesus said. You're not free of tribulation. If somebody teaches you that, preaches that to you, it's a lie. If you follow Jesus Christ, people are not going to like you some, and some are going to hear the truth and come. But some are not going to like you, and there's going to be some crushings. There's going to be some packing and pressures. But the point he's making is, Despite the fact that these, you have these trials, there's this inward peace and joy and love because you know Jesus paid it all. And he's welcomed you into a relationship with God the Father. Now the Holy Spirit lives in your heart. So you are going to have these times, but you're not crushed. All right, and then... He says this, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, 
that the life of Jesus also be made manifested in our body. Now watch this. Some people believe that means physical dying. We're always carrying around the threat of dying, and certainly Paul had that. But some people believe this verse is saying, well, yeah, but you're also spiritually, you're dying. So let me just describe something. Romans 6, 7, and 8 tells us that when we surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, we participated in his death. We were linked to him in his death. And then we were raised to new life, and that's why we do baptism. We dunk you under the water to show you've been linked in his death. The old man has died. You've been raised to new life up out of the water. Get it? And it signifies a spiritual reality. And yet, there's this thing that you're doing more and more as you become more Christ-like, sanctification, where you're dying to self more and more. You know you can test this. And I'm convinced you test it way more in the smaller things in life than you do in the bigger things of life. What do I mean? Have somebody that irritates you slight you or say something about you in public, in front of other people, and see how you're like Christ. Or, in my case, have to deal with referees. As I coach basketball. I'm kidding, but not really. But just think about this. <clears throat> He's saying that you're always caring about the dying of the Lord Jesus... Here's this man who's writing this, who established the church, and they're calling him names, and they're being really vile to him, saying he's not trustworthy, he doesn't go... I mean, think about when people say that. How do you react when people say those things about you, especially people you've cared for or loved, and they stabbed you in the back? I'm convinced that you see how you're dying to self more and more in the small things of life, I don't think they're that small, than you do in the great big things. The great big things can happen too, but it's the daily interactions with people where we see whether we're dying and caring about this and whether that's been put to death. Because here's the thing, when you get to the place where you can die to self and not let that have eat at you all the time, watch this, that's when you're free. Okay, they slighted me, they talked about me, but I know that the battle is the Lord's. And I'm just going to give the Lord room to work here and to reconcile and to heal and all that. I don't have to run to the person and tell them how horrible they are and post it up on Facebook and do all that. I'm just going to wait for the Lord. See, when you're in that space by the Holy Spirit, you're never more free. And that's what the Lord's telling us here, I think, that the dying of the Lord Jesus, think about it, the man who had all the privilege, or Jesus who had all the privileges, came out of the heavens like a worm, Psalm 22 says, took all the indignities that were heaped upon him by his countrymen and by the people who loved him, and he was deserted by his friends and all that sort of thing, and he laid his life down willingly because he knew there was something greater at stake. That's freedom. And that's what's living inside of us. It's who's living inside of us. You never know how much you're like Jesus until you're tested in that way, huh? 
Well, so he says this, and then he says, uh, uh, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And you know this, without the cross, there's no crown, and it's the same in your life. So then death is working in us, but life in you, which is fascinating to me. He's saying, I would pour out all of my life, Paul says, as a minister of the gospel. Paul says this, I'd pour out all of my life. I'd take all the slights. I'd take all the indignities. I'd take all the abuse. I'd take all the gossip. I'd take all the hate and the spew and all the toxicity. I'd do it all because of life for you. That's what ministering is, folks. That's ministering, and you're all a minister. And since verse 13, we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, and therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore speak, knowing that, watch this, we preached about this about three weeks ago, maybe longer. He who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. In other words, you're to live the Christian life not by your own power and strength, not by your own mustering and discipline, although discipline can be good. You're to live the gospel life, the gospel of grace by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That's grace-based living. You live by his power, and his power raised him from the dead. That's beautiful. So don't say you can't forgive Don't say you'll never be free. Don't say you could never have joy. Don't say it. I, I understand. I'm not saying pat you on the head and get over it. It's easy. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is he's given you resurrection power to live the life that you say maybe or maybe not you can't do. You get it? I'm not saying it's easy. For all things or for your sakes. Here it comes. Oh, one other thing I wanted to show you there. He will present us with you. Do you notice that? You're going to be presented with the Lord. We're all going to be reunited together with the Lord for eternity. Isn't that beautiful? We're not going to know less than we know Net less there than we know now, folks. Some people in our little fellowship have gone on to be with the Lord. Sad, man. We grieve, and yet we know we're going to be reunited with them. Well, anyway, for all things, for your sakes, see that? That's what ministers do. You're a minister. You're not thinking of yourself all the time. You're thinking of others for all things or for your sakes that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. There it is. <laughs> There's the ministry. Where are you praying for people? I don't know, at your work, at some whatever. Put this verse up. All things are for your sakes. Watch. That as I live my life of grace, that the grace of Jesus becomes reality in my life as I live under resurrected power, not my own efforts. Watch, this will spread through the people who I'm ministering to. Not just a few, but many, and then will burst forth in thanksgiving 
And it'll be, oh, thank you for Paul and the church. Nope. Thank you for the glory of God, which is found in Jesus Christ. That's what we're to be thanking God for. When you come in here, that's what we do. When we worship and we listen and we go out and minister to people, it's for the glory of God. Therefore, don't lose heart. Can you believe he said it again? He just keeps saying it. If you just focus on grace, the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ, you might have crushings and perplexing things happen and pressures and trials, but you won't be crushed and devastated and wiped off the map. No, you won't lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet there's this thing. It's the inward man, which is being renewed day by day. So how are you being renewed? Day by day by grace. Ah, you should get that uh, devotional. (laughs) For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal, watch it, here it comes. Here's where he's thinking in Hebrew, But writing in Greek, he says, an eternal weight of glory. He's thinking of that kabod, the heavy, the substance of God that was in the Shekinah glory. It's an eternal weight of glory. And watch it, folks. When you live according to the grace of God, you have a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's a powerful amazing statement while we don't look at the things which are seen but the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporary but the things which are not seen are eternal we could go into a whole thing about spiritual warfare there's real spiritual warfare and it centers right over people's salvation whether they're saved or not whether the light comes on or is shined into their hearts whether they receive there's a spiritual battle going on there Yes, that's true, but there's also temporary, unimportant things that we focus on that when we start to realize that grace is eternal and God's plan is eternal, those temporary things, even if they're sort of important, just sort of fade away, and you don't obsess over them all the time. Here we go again, the word freedom. When you live like this, you're never more free. You know, because when you buy the brand new car and it has all the bells and whistles and it's all shined up, and you know, somebody opens the car door and dings it, man, that's a real bummer. But if you have a Pinto from like 1987, somebody hits the car, what do you care? I think we had that Pinto in Hawaii. But anyway, the point is, Paul is telling you how how free you can be as you live in this way, by the resurrected power of Jesus Christ under the new covenant. Oh my goodness. You have available to you an eternal weight of glory. Day by day. The grace of God is available to you, not just at the time of salvation, but every day of your life, God's grace is available, his resource and strength 
so that when you go out in the world and you're working hard at being a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher or whatever you're doing, I don't know, whatever you're doing, you recognize, yes, I'm trying to get this task done because that's the responsible thing to do, but I'm doing it for the glory of God, and there are people here who I know you want to reach, Lord, so help me to do it in the best way that I can as worship unto you. It takes a different spin for your work and for your school and for your friendships and for your romantic life and for your financial life and everything else. Everything becomes or or comes from, sorry, an eternal perspective and not just how you can satisfy yourself in the temporal. Wow. What a way to live. So as we close, and we, I think they're going to, are you? Yeah, you're going to lead us in song. Just think about yourself. Paul says to examine our faith. How are you living? How am I living? For the temporal or for the eternal? If you're living for the eternal by the power of the resurrected spirit, you're not going to, you're going to live in or the resurrection power, you're going to live in transparency. You're not going to hide everything. Why would you hide everything? You've been washed clean by the blood. You have a clean slate. There's mercy. You're going to not be crafty. You're just going to talk to people with real love and real truth. You see, this is authentic here. This isn't fake, phony Christianity. You're going to do that You're going to live by his power, and as you minister to people, you're going to pour out your life for others. You're not going to worry about slights and gossip about you. That comes with the territory. Just give the Lord space to work. He'll work it out. Then, before you know it, as you keep praying for people and ministering to people, there's going to be a burst of thanksgiving and praise in the people that you're ministering to, because they're going to have the light shined in their darkness. By the way, don't think the devil is the only one that keeps that veil over there. The Gospels tell us that men love the darkness rather than the light. So there's all these forces against us. But watch. And as you do this and people are bursting out in praise ever more slightly, or maybe it would be more dramatic, but, but, but the things of this world, the shiny new you know, doorknobs on the new house, I don't have to have the shiny ones. Just put the old ones on. That's okay. I mean, everything's, you know, look nice, yes. You don't have to have all, right? Because you, you're more worried about going over to that person's house and sharing with them when they call Rather than attending to all my hobbies, your life will be way different. But here's the thing. You'll never be more free. So let's pray. Well, Lord, thanks so much, and thank you for this amazing word. Lord, I'm glad we're just cracked pots. Just available to be filled up, used for the master. I'm glad we're cracked pots. We don't have to impress or live up we're just who we are great praise the lord and lord despite my scars and my 
the holes that have been shot through or whatever it is, or the cracks. It's in the perfect place where your glory can be revealed. In our weakness is where you shine forth so strongly. Help us to be people who can live by this resurrection power with your resource and strength and go out in the world and share your love and light with the heart and dirt, uh, hurting and dark world. Lord, I pray for each one of these people in here. If there's anybody that's never surrendered their life to Christ, I pray that happens today. Come up and talk to us after. But also for everyone who has done that, I pray you'd give them a divine appointment tomorrow in their shop, in their classroom, on Zoom meeting, <laughs> or wherever they go. And I pray you'd be with them and bring many into your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen.